Do emus eat bodies? <laughs> Is this a segue you can use? <laughs> <laughs> what do emus even eat? I'm pretty sure they're vegetarian-esque. Are they? I don't know. That's a great question, David. Hello, and welcome to Nerd of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 28, The Great Emu War. Well, hello and welcome back. Today, we've got a special episode for you, one that is all about the emu, or emu, we we got any uh, consensus on how that, that, that's pronounced? Oh, oh right, it's emu. Americans call them emu, which, which I think sounds like a hilarious name. But wait, I've got enough point. Yes, it's a special episode today, because I am once again being joined by my good friend, Mr. David Clay. Together, we are going to break down this bird, find out what they're all about, and then have I got one stupid story for you. And I always find that a stupid story is so much more fun to tell when there's someone to tell it to and who agrees that, yes, the story is indeed stupid. So let's not muck around as I once again hand you over to Nathan from the past. Thank you for that introduction, Nathan from the future, and David from the present. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. Hello. Thank you also, Nathan from the present. Thanks for having me back. Well, you know, I feel like I I had to have you back because the two episodes we did on the Feather Heist have to date been the most popular episodes um, I've put out. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, that's... That is excellent. It is a very interesting story. And I assume, I can only assume, it's the vast amount of context we provided (laughs) that really drew them in. The the hours of, the the hour of background context. (laughs) Part one. Did we even mention the heist by that point? I think we got to it by the end. I think we teased the heist. (laughs) (laughs) But there was a heist. It was definitely the the hour of um, the context. I think the people crave context and dear God... (laughs) We, we we deliver. <laughs> I, I hope so. Although although I'm not sure how much context we're going to be able to get to in, in this session. I... Oh, there's there's going to be context. <laughs> there's going to be context? Oh, you better Excellent. believe there'll be context. Oh, my God. So today, though, what are we doing today? Yeah, what are we doing today? Well, so I thought it'd be good to have you back because I've got another silly story to tell you. And this one is about the emu. And so tell me, David, have you ever had a run-in with an emu? I've been intimidated by an emu before. Really? Like in the wild or like in a, in a zoo or... Paint me a picture. So, a, 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 young, a young David of the tender age of 25... <laughs> <laughs> but a visited, pup in the world. <laughs> but, but a pup. Yes, a mere cub was visiting a zoo. And mm-hmm. I, uh, there was a, a walkthrough section... I can't even remember which zoo it was, actually. But you went through a series of gates mm. and then there was a, a big open area with animals walking around. I think there was a, there were a couple of kangaroos and there was an emu. Mm. And then you go through another gate. So it was kind of a, a glorified airlock with some animals walking around. I always but, like to think that they're airlocks as well. Yeah. I mean, it was a very entertaining <laughs> airlock. Yeah. But uh, so, yes, yeah, so we, we walked in and I just saw walking up to me this massive five foot super i guess 
So emus, okay, mm. this is a bit hard to, I was thinking about what, what an emu is to me. And, and what I see emus as is like an oversized baby swan, like an oversized signet. Oh, wearing, yeah. But, but wearing the, the string mop material. You know, you know, have those mm. mops with those like little stringy bits on it, mm-hmm. and all like crepe paper or something you'd put in mm. a costume. Mm. So I think of a bit as a a signet that's too big, with all this sort of shaggy hair, and and it just sort of waltzed up to me, and um, yep. I realised that I was quite intimidated by this huge beaked, mm. very large bird that was clearly very strong and confident and used to people, but I wasn't used to emus, mm. and I was. I was a bit taken aback and, and I and I took a couple of steps back and it realized that I had nothing for it and I oh. it off. So that was fine. Okay. It, it didn't attack me or anything, <laughs> oh, no. but, but I, I've, <laughs> that's stuck with me that if I think if I saw one in the wild, assuming it didn't run away from me, mm. I would be um, a little nervous. They're big. They're big birds. Like I'm trying to think, do you reckon it was about the same height as you or a little smaller, a little bigger? I, it was a bit smaller, but mm. it, it had the confidence of a larger bird. <laughs> well, I mean, that's still pretty big. Like, uh, I, I, I do have some stats later, of just, you know, the you know, size, weight, speed, oh, etc. But um, Is the emu significantly bigger in my memory than it actually could possibly be in real life? Well, no, that's why I asked. Like, I think an emu is about, you know, I think they're a little smaller than the average height, heighted man. And, I, you know, you're probably a little taller than the average heighted man, I'd say. Oh, thank um, you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm exactly an average hearted man. Uh, I think was that. I think that would have been at the Canberra Zoo. I'm sure I've been to the Canberra Zoo and walked through an airlock and had emus wandering around. Maybe that's where it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. Given I lived in Canberra at the time and <laughs> do now and did before then, it probably was that zoo. You've you've been a consistent Canberra living man. I've always said it. I but I've encountered an emu to mm. answer your question, and okay, they're. They're very interesting looking, but in a in a kind of a scary way. They're very unusual for a bird. I think um, I've I've really only encountered an emu in the wild this one time. I can't remember where I was. I think I was at Western Australia, and I was driving alone in a car down this dirt road. And way in the distance, <laughs> there was like a little flock of emus. Sorry, just yes. given our previous um, the, our our B roll conversation. Oh yes, of what to do with bodies. Oh. Unrelated to that. Unrelated. You were just alone in a car on I was, a trip. I was. Well, I didn't start out alone, but I was alone at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many questions for, for anything. For, we can save it for a time. I, I know recording. for a fact emu will not eat a, a dead human. I for unrelated reasons. Not, <laughs> unrelated reasons, independent and, to that trip. <laughs> and, and legally distinct from yes, an admission of guilt. Okay. I wasn't trying. anyway. Um, but I saw. I think there was maybe about three or four on the road, kind of just wandering. And I stopped the car, and I was like, "Whoa, how close can I get to them?" And I got out, got out, and I kind of started very slowly walking down the road. And they kind of turned and looked at me, and just instantly ran away. And I was like, "Ah, oh, damn it!" <laughs> that sounds like a wild animal. They they weren't they weren't interested. Then by when I kind of got up to the spot in the road where they disappeared, they were long gone. I was like, "Oh man!" Got back in my car, drove away. There's nothing that you could offer them. No, I had nothing for them that, that they wanted anyway. <laughs> you had plenty to offer them. <laughs> a so car, much, even. And so much stuff for them, and they didn't. They didn't want a bar of it anyway. Uh, so, uh, what, what was your um, what was your experience of them? Did, did you did you find them intimidating? Obviously, you walked up to them hoping to get as close as you could. So, I, yeah, that bad for you. I didn't get 
I didn't get. I, I think there's been times like at a zoo where they've been like behind a fence or something. You're like, damn, that is a big bird. Yep. But I, I would have been 50 meters away from them. Not very, not particularly close that time. I can see if an emu was coming at you with confidence yep. that it would be concerning because they're very large and you know, they'd give you a run for your money if they wanted to have a go, I reckon. Well, run would be a, a very good word for oh. what I understand emus tend to do. Have you have you seen other or had close encounters with other large flightless birds? Uh, not close encounters, no. I, you know, I've you know seen cassowaries in similar you know zoo sort of settings and ostrich in similar zoo sort of settings, but n- n- not not a run in per se, shall we? Shall we? Shall we? Shall we put it? Was uh, which one out of all of them was mm. the the most? That was the friendliest. The friendliest? Mm. I think emus are generally pretty friendly. Oh, that's nice. Generally. I think you don't want to mess with ostrich, uh, with, sorry, with cassowaries. They're uh, generally described as being ill-tempered and pugnacious. Oh, you don't want any large <laughs> flightless animal with a razor sharp beak to be pugnacious. No, well, they've also got razor sharp. Um, they've got a, a special slashing claw on their their toe. If you ever see like a photo of a cassowary's feet, they've got three toes. They've got two normal ones, and then one that's just like a blade. And yeah, they they use that for for slashing purposes. For, for slashing purposes. So yeah. Sam Neil, when he was talking about velociraptors, yeah, he could have been talking about the cassowaries. <laughs> a little. They're probably about the same size as a well, not. A, the velociraptors from Jurassic Park, anyway. Oh, exactly, and they're coloured like I would expect a dinosaur to be coloured. They are. They've got the. They've got your cassowaries. Pretty cool. I've never met an ostrich though. I've. They've got them at the Canberra Zoo. Get out! Really? They do. That's the only place I've ever seen them at the Canberra Zoo. Hmm. Oh, luckily, I live in Canberra. Right? <laughs> you have, you, you have op- opportunities abound. Uh, oh yeah. So before we before we get too far into the weeds, so I'm sure you, you you're familiar, David, that the emu is our national bird of Australia. I am. Yes, uh, it's it's right there on the coat of arms with the kangaroo. But are you familiar with the rumor about why the emu and the kangaroo were chosen as um, the animals to feature on our coat of arms? There's a rumor about why they were chosen. Well, the rumor or the reason, if you will. Clearly, I'm not familiar with. Please tell oh, me. Oh, okay. So apparently, you know, the, the, the word on the street is that the animals... <laughs> the word on the street. <laughs> the word on the street is that these these two animals in particular were chosen to be on our coat of arms because they're both incapable of walking backwards. And Australia as a country always moving forward, as our most illustrious former Prime Minister Julie Gillard was fond of saying. So, you know, we we have exclusively forward-moving animals on our coat of arms. You know, aren't they facing each other on the coat of arms? They are indeed facing each other on the coat of arms. So if they moved forward, wouldn't they just crush the coat of arms <laughs> in between them? I guess they're not moving currently. They're just holding the coat of arms. They're stationary. <laughs> so they so they can stop moving. But they can stop moving. They're, 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 and... Yes, they're, this isn't the the plot of the film Speed. They can stop. <laughs> Was an unstoppable force versus an immovable <laughs> object. The kangaroo and the emu. Uh, but when when I tell you that they those are animals that can't move backwards, do you do you buy that? Look, now that you've mentioned it, I I, I do remember that being a, a rumor or, or, or what I assume was an urban legend, and, and promptly decided that that was untrue and removed <laughs> it from my mind. So I don't <gasps> think I believe it. I, oh. I just based on how. Just looking at how they've moved and, and how they look like they should be able mm. to move, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be able to move backwards. Ah, David, you know, you, you've, got, you've, you've got an eye for fake news. <laughs> well, 
That's that's reassuring because wouldn't I look the fool? If it turns out neither of them could go backwards, and that's totally legit. Because so when I started doing the research for this episode, because I, I like I'd heard of that myth and I thought it was absolutely bogus, and so I, I started researching it. And everywhere I looked on the internet, there was just article after article after article, all of them claiming they can't walk backwards. And I was like, oh my god, wait, maybe this maybe this is true. Maybe they can't walk backwards. Oh. But then I, I found a video of an emu that is just very clearly walking backwards. <laughs> was, was it titled very specifically some sort of debunking the myth? No, I think it was titled all caps, emus can walk backwards, exclamation mark, oh, exclamation mark. Um, excellent. I'll put a link to the video of the emu walking backwards in our notes today so that we can bust this myth once and for all. I'd like to watch this. What about what's the verdict on kangaroos? Uh, well... I'm not sure. I I had no interest in the kangaroos. But (laughs) but what did interest me was that I kind of thought, wait, so if that's not the reason why they were chosen, because they can clearly walk, well, the emu at least can clearly walk backwards. I thought, well, why are, why were they chosen as our national, uh, for for the coat of arms? And so I went to the source of all truth and knowledge, which is the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. (laughs) Spoken truly like a former employee of of the Department of (laughs) Primaries and Cabinet. For they have responsibility for Australia's national symbols. And and uh, and here here is what the official the official line is. And so it goes, you know, there's blah 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 blah. There's a description of the coat of arms, and then it finally comes to the bit that we're interested in, which is, and I quote The shield is held up by the native Australian animals, the kangaroo and the emu, which were chosen to symbolise a nation moving forward based on the fact that neither animal could move backwards easily. (laughs) And I thought, that is so brilliant. That is excellent. It is the reason why they were selected, but they also know that they technically can move backwards, and so they just add just one little word on the end to be like, "Eh, caveat. (laughs) They would be reluctant to move backwards, just like Australia. <laughs> it's like, it's like, because they can't move backwards easily. We, we aspire to have difficulty ambulating in a particular direction. Uh, just like, so, you know, so the myth is true. That is the reason why they were selected, despite the fact that, that they true? can't move backwards. Is that true? Is someone having a laugh? That's what's on the department, the Prime Minister and Cabinet's website. I've got to go with... I've got to go with my, my, my public service peeps. They, it's not they know. just Wikipedia. <laughs> was the, the video you watched, was the emu struggling? No. So in the video, um, which people can, 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 can view, so the way the person gets the emu to walk backwards is that it must be, it's, it's a domesticated emu, I'd say, and it kind of walks up to this person and she has a bucket and she puts the bucket on the emu's head and the emu's kind of like confused and it just backs up and then it kind of like manages to knock the bucket off its head and that is kind of the scenario in which it's walked backwards. That's a pretty standard animal behavior of bucket on head. You'd think, think so. We put it back, it's kind of like, oh, what's going on? And it kind of backs up and then it backs up, dips its head. Tips its head and the bucket falls off and it's like, well, that was weird. Yeah. And you're like, but it's clearly, you know, moving backwards. I guess thinking about it, do you eagerly move backwards in everyday life no like how often does it happen like and how often do you see a dog walking backwards oh and reluctantly yeah it's like it doesn't happen a lot really it's not the easiest way of moving you wouldn't want to run backwards for too long if you didn't have to not without a soft surface no although that would be a fun race to watch we used to do that in the backwards running race Mm, yeah that yeah i kind of want to do that now that sounds like great fun um do it at the zoo (laughs) with the emus (laughs) 
<laughs> the kangaroo. We can all be uncomfortable together. Oh, dear. So um, we haven't really described an emu yet, but, you know, uh, we've kind of alluded to the fact that they're, they're pretty, they're a big old beefy bird. Um, but yes, how, how would you describe an emu? How would I just, well... You kind of did before. Did I? The signet with a moppy sort of bit. So you did kind of describe an emu. So what what I think of an emu mm. is when I look at an emu, I, I'm not sure why, mm. but what I usually think of is someone in a puppet <laughs> and their arm is out the front and they're hunched over underneath, hence the, the big arch in the back. Yeah. And um, they've just got, yeah, crepe paper or... Or mop material draped over them for the the body of kind of like um how the big bird puppet works. Yes, yes, it would be like if a big if big bird got a buzz cut just on top, and his neck as well, um, died. You know, had a little bit of blue mm-hmm. on his neck and around mm-hmm. his cheeks. Had some slightly scary but quite interesting looking red eyes, mm. and um, got a bit shaggy. <laughs> they're more they're longer than an ostrich. Mm. I think of um, ostriches as a a chorus line dancer from musicals in the the Mm -hmm. 50s and Mm -hmm. 60s. I see that. And whereas an emu is more of, yeah, a kid in a a costume (laughs) made out of crepe paper with his little hand sticking up with some blue paint on it. I can Um, see that description. I'm kind of looking at the photos now and it's kind of reminding me of a, a bale of hay with legs. Yeah. See, I guess that's the thing with an emu, right? Because we're so familiar with emus, uh, you and I, given where we uh, live. But, I mean, it's it's an unusual looking bird if mm. you've never seen an emu. Yep. It's even more unusual if you've never seen a large flightless bird. Yeah, but it is, it is distinct from ostriches. It's distinct from cassowaries. Mm-hmm. I guess less so, maybe. But yeah, I mean, if you just literally want to describe an emu, it's what? It's a... It's a large flightless bird, slightly more mm. horizontal than an ostrich. Very shaggy, like a like a bale of hay as a body. Got a bit of a blue neck, sharp looking beak, and sort of gangles about the place. And its babies are very cute. Oh yes, because their babies are little um black and white stripy things. Little stripy guys. Yeah. And they've got green eggs. They do. They're very large, very large, almost black green eggs. And actually, I think I think we will come to that in a in a little bit. It doesn't even look like they have arms or wings. So they do have wings, vestigial wings. Uh, they're about. It sounds significant. They're about twenty centimeters long, but I suppose on a bird of that size, it's that's mm, quite puny. Yeah, I mean that's what T Rex territory. Yeah, they're very 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 small. I think when they they're kind of like hidden underneath all their shag. Mm. So you don't really see them. Apparently, um, when they run, they will use them to sort of like stabilize a little bit. But oh, that, yes. that's about the extent that their wings have. That's not too vestigial. There's, there's a use balancing. Yeah, a little bit. There's a little bit. They've got a little bit going on there. They yeah. can't fly, though. No, they definitely cannot fly. Not even a little bit. No, not even a little bit. So before we move on, David, I'm going to need some assistance here because I'm going to start talking about taxonomy. And Ooh. I quite enjoy taxonomy. There are people who don't? Uh, well, this is the... I don't know if people don't share my love for taxonomy. <laughs> you haven't had specific feedback on more or less taxonomy, please? No, I haven't. And I also don't know that if when I talk about it, it ever makes sense. So I need you to pull me up if I'm saying anything that's like doesn't make sense or is incredibly dull. Okay. 
I can I can try, uh, but I mean, we both love context so much. I we, bet it'll be amazing for me. We we do um, because uh, you know because when I think of taxonomy, uh, like I think it's just like it's a fancy word for just the tree of life kind of thing, and it's just the system to understand how different organisms are related to each other. And I quite like touching on it because I think that as we creates context for what our bird is and how it relates to other birds and whatnot. Yeah, well, there are also unexpected connections or lack of connections in mm. between animals that look look similar to each other. So yes. I think it can be quite interesting and hmm. give you a sense of where um, an animal developed and what environment it developed in, what other creatures are around there at the same time. Ah, you're indulging me, David, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Please, go on, tell me. So the emu is from a little fascinating offshoot of the birds, and the group is formally referred to as the ratites. And this group of birds is thought of as being the most ancient lineage of birds. So they started down their own evolutionary path millions of years before the other birds kind of began to diverge. They probably split off before the the late Cretaceous extinction event 66 million years ago when the asteroid slammed into the Earth, as I know you're very familiar with, David. (laughs) <laughs> yes intimately, intimately personally familiar <laughs> um are ostriches ratites as well yes so the ratite oh. family is um so the emus the ostriches the rears kiwis mm-hmm. and then you have the extinct birds the elephant bird from madagascar and yep. the moa from new zealand they're all part of the same family and then there's also a flighted bird the tinamous from south america which are about the size of a chicken um not a particularly well-known bird but they belong to the family as well are they extinct or are they still around they are still around so there's a flighted flightless bird there is a flighted member of the ratite family yes ah, right. mm, mm, which suggests that all of them were at one stage able to fly. There was some, uh, it was not a controversy, but it was debated for a long time as to whether these big flightless birds were ever flighted if, or if they were flighted at one point and evolved to lose it. But then when they kind of worked out that the tinamous were related to, were closely related to these birds, it kind of proved that not only were they all flighted at one point, but that they independently lost flight so it wasn't a single event and then they diverged they had diverged and then lost flight independently from each other ah interesting I, i've just looked up a tinamou it looks like a cross between a a uh, crested pigeon and a baby emu it's very cool yeah they've kind of they're kind of like a a pheasanty chickeny emu-y uh, they're a weird bird yeah they're also kind of nondescript are they well, I don't know. I kind of look at them and I'm like, I don't know, you're a chickeny, pheasanty, uh, vague, brownie, ground-dwelling bird. I, I don't know. I mean, look, Nathan, you, you see a lot of birds. <laughs> and, and probably after a while, I mean, they don't all start to look the same. Oh, the- I'm sure the shine wears off a little bit on some of the more interesting ones. I, I think they're... This one is called an elegant crested tinamou. Well, I'll tell you what you should do, David. Google tinamou yeah. eggs. Damn. They're very pretty, aren't they? Oh, my God. Mm. They, there's so many different colors, and they're all so beautiful. They, so, they, so there's about 40 species of tinamou, and they all, they all lay a different colored egg, but they all, look, they all have the same quality about them. They, they almost look like they're porcelain. I was going to say, the colors and the texture just reminds me of, I'm not sure if it's still in vogue, but, but relatively recent trends in in colors of ceramics Mm. is that that sort of mint-ish color Mm. 
very almost not quite pastels, but very quite quite bold, but warm, yeah, solid colors. The the yeah the thing that Tinamous are most famous for is they're they're kind of renowned as having the most beautiful eggs of any bird. So one of them is a distinct olive or avocado green. Mm. Yeah, they're amazing. Amazing. Yeah. They're incredible. Oh, They're incredible. Script bird. They have amazing eggs. <laughs> Top stuff, Tinamous. Anyway, we've gotten off track. Um, this is all great stuff, though. Ratites. Ratites. So, yes, yeah, so they started evolving about probably a little before the extinction event. Um, so when the, the extinction event happened at the end of Cretaceous period, birds were obviously, they were part of the dinosaur kind of lineage of things and all the dinosaur all the dinosaur lines sort of died out except for the birds but within that family of um birds aves there are kind of at the very top top level there are three distinct groups of birds or main clades okay and so when the, the extinction event happens there were really just three all modern birds kind of evolved from three different lines and so one group of birds is chickens and the ducks like your waterfowl and your game birds they all evolved from one line of birds what are they called? Uh, I can't remember. Nathan from the future here. The name for the large clade that includes both game birds and waterfowl is Galloanserae. This super order of birds is commonly known as fowl, including both land and waterfowl. The word is made up of two parts, gallus, Latin for rooster, and answer, Latin for goose. Galloanserae, to be fair to pass Nathan, it's a weird word. Back to the show. So chickens and game birds are galliformes, and the ducks, swans, and geese are ansiformes, I think, but they are then related to each other in a, their own little clade. They sort of have a common ancestor. The other, the second group of birds is then the really the massive one that are called the neoaves, the new birds, and that is literally every other bird. And then the third group are the ratites, and those are the only three wow. major clades. You've got ducks, ducks and chickens the radites, and then everything else. Wow. Okay. So so ducks and chickens and, and emus and ostriches, mm. all pretty pretty old lineages. Yes. Mm. Yeah. The ratites are the oldest. Then it's the, the game birds and the waterfowls kind of broke off next. And then it's just everything else. So everything else is kind of vaguely related. And then you've got chickens, ducks, radites that are just these very ancient orders of birds that aren't really closely related to any of the others. So does that manifest in any way in terms of common traits between them? I mean, obviously most are flightless. Is that relevant to them being an older lineage of, of bird creatures? Um, potentially. Nathan from the future again. So David just asked a really interesting question about what features of the ratites make them unique. Now I have cut the answer out because almost all of it is covered in our previous episode on flightless birds. So if you haven't heard that already and you want the details, click on back and listen to that one. And if you're already up to speed, then jolly good. You don't need to hear it again. Back to Nathan from the past. But uh, emus, mm. very strong legs. Very strong legs. So, yeah, so I, you know, I can give you some key emu stats if you like. Go for it. Love them. So to give you a, a sense of the scale, so a typical emu stands between 140 and 190 centimetres. Wow. It's about, yeah, as I said, kind of like a from a pinch below to just a pinch above average kind of human height, I'd say. What, I'm about 180 myself, so oh. just to give you a sense for all the people out there who know me. Um, yes, and the average weight of an emu is um, 60 kilograms, which, funnily enough, is 
consistent with my own weight. So, you know, an emu, it's about the equivalent of me. One Nathan. It's one Nathan. You're equivalent to an emu. I mean, that's that's a great a great animal to be equivalent to, particularly as a bird. You know, you're not equivalent that's to... That's true. You wouldn't want to be like a sparrow. Yeah. <laughs> or a sparrow. <laughs> that, if you're going to be the equivalent to a bird, be a, an emu. Sure. So, you know, uh, yeah, so about... Yeah, 140 to 190 centimetres, 60 kilos. They're very fleet-footed. They can quite comfortably run at speeds of about 48 kilometres an hour, which is... I don't know if that means anything to you, David. Uh, it's flying of a sort. <laughs> so, it didn't really mean too much to me. I wasn't really... Sh- like Because you know how fast 48 k's is, but like for an animal to move that fast... I'm, yeah, anyway. So, what I did, I looked up Usain Bolt uh, and what he ran uh, when he broke the 100 metres world record. So to run 100 meters in 9.58 seconds, which is what he did, it uh, he came in at a top speed of 44.72 kilometers. So the emu can outrun the fastest human. Wow. So, you know, they're pretty quick. So any sort of sense of, hey, there's an emu chasing after me, I'm going to run away. Probably not. It's not going to work. You're going to have a bad day. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have stolen anything from it. Yeah, don't don't do that. Cool legs, but don't take them. <laughs> uh, okay, so very, very fast birds, obviously. Is that, how does that compare to other land animals, like a, like the, the classic cheetah? So the cheetah can move between uh, 80 and 130 kilometers an hour. So they're much quicker, okay. yes. So a cheetah could catch an emu. Uh, it, yes, it could. It could, an emu but, would catch us. But I imagine it's probably a situation where the cheetah would be moving at that top speed for a very short amount of time. So if the emu could yeah. probably maintain its speed for longer. So Does, like the so cheetah would have to catch it in a sudden burst. Damn. Yeah. So, so emus obviously very, very fast, but, but I thought emus could run for a very long time as well. So very high stamina. Yes, 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 exactly. So they can't reach those explosive speeds, but their stamina, they, I don't know how long they'd be able to maintain that speed, but you would imagine for quite some time because that's how ostrich kind of ostrich i think can move a bit quicker but that's how they survive on the you know african plain where there actually are cheetahs and lions and things that hunt them they usually don't fight they flee and as long as they because with the ostrich they have they're so tall they can usually spot things Mm -hmm. from a great distance and so as long as they have enough notice they they can usually outrun most things that would come after them so one other thing worth noting about the emu, they have a role reversal when it comes to mating. Usually for birds, the male performs like the courtship dances and tries to woo the mate. But uh, for emus, it's the other way around. The females perform the courtship dances and fight each other over the mates. And then the males um, incubate and care for the chicks and the females kind of bugger off. Oh, fair enough. Interesting. Are the, how are their size differences in terms of sexual dimorphism? I think it's fairly fairly minimal. Really? So it's not like spiders then it's it's closer to to other birds. So uh yeah, the females are slightly maybe 10 centimeters bigger. Okay. Is is that is that the same as for other um ratites like ostriches and, and cassowaries? So interestingly all ratites except the kiwis I think uh have similar breeding strategies. So the males yeah, the males incubate and look after the young and they usually you might get several females laying in the same nest sort of thing and a single male will incubate all the eggs and then kind of guard and protect the young uh, so ostriches do it emus do it and cassowaries do it i suspect do it and i know the tinamous do it as well so that's a that's a that's a feature that they all kind of share which is unusual for birds 
but not unheard Clearly, it's of. working for them. That's that's good. And so, and as we kind of mentioned before, the eggs they lay, they're they're quite interesting. They're you know they're very large. They weigh about a half a kilo, or the same as twelve Oof. chicken eggs, Oof. give or take. And uh, as you mentioned, they're a dark green, almost black color. And I tried to find out why that is so. And the leading theory is that it's a camouflage that it helps them blend into the ground. But I'm not, I, I'm not sure because because once they're laid, the male basically sits on the nest and during the time it's on the nest it he it won't leave the nest for eight weeks and it won't eat mm. it won't drink it kind of just sits there and the only time it, it just stands up and sort of turns the eggs every now and again and whilst doing that it loses a third of its weight during that period but so i don't know why camouflaging the egg would be important when the male is basically never leaving the nest I, well i suppose it's, there's no detriment to it so have pretty eggs yeah, I suppose so, because I guess you get those evolutionary things where uh, traits arise that are neither positive nor negative, and so it just sticks around. Could be one of those. So, so very large egg mm. and 12 chicken eggs. Mm. Is is an emu 12 times larger than a chicken or more than that? Uh, they would probably be a little smaller, I suspect. Nathan from the future here, butting in real quick. Nathan from the past meant to say larger here. The emu is larger than you would expect based on the size of its egg. Back to him now. Because even though they lay quite large eggs as a ratio to their body size, it's smaller than is normal for what you would expect in other birds. Like if you were to plot a chart and predict the size of the egg the emu should lay based on how big an egg other birds lay, you would suspect it would be a bigger egg. Interesting. That's not what I expected. I think just because of the kiwis being in it. In the same group, I thought they must all have very proportionally large eggs, but but not emus. Well, it's suspected that the kiwi's egg is so big because the kiwi was probably a larger bird once that's grown smaller over time and its egg has just stayed the same size. Ah, that's that's so... the theory as to why the kiwi's egg is so disproportionately large. So maybe emus used to be smaller? Um, I just don't think they need to lay a bigger egg, I guess. Well, why do it, you know? If you don't need to, this seems uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I don't have that information. All right, we can move on to the emu war. We can, yeah, the real reason why we're here today after all that content is to talk about what is popularly known as the Great Emu War of 1932. Very popularly known as. Very popularly known as. In public discourse. Yes. As. The Great Emu War. The Great Emu War. <laughs> I mean, it's it's probably the biggest one there's ever been. Oh, well, the only, indeed. That's Well, that's why it's not Emu w- War 1, you know? It was, just the, it, was just, <laughs> Emu war one. it was just the Great War. No need for a sequel. Yeah. Well, I hope not. <laughs> oh, dear. So before I start telling you the story of the Great Emu War, you know, to really do the war <laughs> justice, I'm going to have to provide some context. <laughs> Uh, yeah, tell me, what are the circumstances leading up to and that caused the Great Emu War? So to set up the Great Emu War, we need to go back to the original Great War, World War One, and then uh, there were some policies that Australia had for uh, returned servicemen at the end of the war. Um, one of the policies was that they were granted land in Western Australia, with the idea was that, you know, it was to push them into agriculture, uh, I suppose, and to also set them up um, with a profession, I guess, after the war. And so the scheme it saw some 5,000 soldiers settled in Western Australia, kind of like to the east of Perth in that kind of area out there. Oh. And so the reason, you know, I give some of this military background details because it might explain 
why the farmers ended up doing what they did later um, when we get to the emus. Okay, but we'll, okay. co- we'll come to that. So anyway, so you had all these people that had been shunted out west, and it meant that they were progressively moving further and further out into more marginal and less uncultivated land they had to kind of like set up for themselves. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you know, they were starting to encroach into emu territory. And so the first thing that happened, there were a number of things that happened. The first thing that happened was the depression that kicked off in 1929. Mm-hmm. And that caused the price of wheat, their primary crop that they were growing out there to the price of wheat basically fell off a cliff during the early 1930s. And so to start off thing, times were, times was tough, I guess. The, the price was so low at one point that the farmers were threatening that they weren't even going to harvest because it wasn't worth their, worth their labor to harvest the wheat. And then um, then they had a, a bit of a, a problem with the emus. So it was estimated that at the time there were something like 20,000 emus out in, in the local district or the area. And so what had sort of what what happened is that when they were setting up their farms and they started to cultivate the land, they had brought a lot of water and food into an area that traditionally really hadn't had much in it to start off with. Hmm. Yeah, it hadn't been overly productive land. Certainly not for agricultural or for um, that sort of farming purpose. Yeah, I mean, you you can imagine kind of like you know, scrubby bush sort of area is kind of I guess hmm. what they were kind of going into. Doesn't lend itself to to that sort of irrigation system no but well no but they they put irrigation in and they you know got their crops in they had i guess they had created an abundance of food that had not previously been there and the emus were well impressed (laughs) the emus (laughs) as a group were very impressed with this production the industrial the industrious nature of um... and and they became jealous (laughs) and waved war They, they looked on our exploits with jealous eyes um, and they, they sought to annex the land for themselves. <laughs> and usually the emus would migrate through that land as they kind of head from the west to the coast at a particular time in the year. But then because there was this abundance of food there that hadn't been there before, they um, they decided that they would not migrate and they set up a shop and they started making nuisance of themselves. Ah, well, I mean, typical humans ah. changing the, the way of things and... Emus just trying to adapt. That's it. So uh, so they ate the crops right down to the stubs. They, they flattened the fences. They ruined the fields. They, they just made a general mess of things. Yeah. They were just... They're mucking around. Having some food and stuff. Yeah. Just walking forwards all over the <laughs> over the fields. <laughs> reluctantly backwards sometimes. It's very, very reluctantly backwards. Only when, <laughs> only when pressed. <laughs> only when bucketed. Yes, indeed. So, so they've got a bit of a pest situation going on. It's... Uh, it's an agricultural issue. And if you were a farmer in a situation, David, and you wanted to make an appeal to the government for assistance, you know, what would you do? What, what, do you, what would you do? Oh, I would probably try to contact some sort of representative stakeholder group to advocate on my behalf, or I might try to advocate myself if I had a, a member who were particularly able to influence the, the way of things. Write a letter. <laughs> well, I wrote a letter. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a, I think for that sort of thing, it probably wouldn't call for a rebellious uprising. <laughs> but um, you know, they're all options. They are all options. Well, they didn't. They didn't do any of that. If, if I were an emu, I'd, I'd pull out one of my own feathers as a quill <laughs> and write, write a letter directly to the governor general. Maybe. Oh my! At the time, governor general, the mayor of somewhere. <laughs> 
<laughs> the mayor of Perth. I see it and say, you mayors in the city, you forget about us country emus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I would. I would just try to form a collective oh. for, to advocate. Well, they did form a collective, and they did advocate. But I suppose D- did they? They through, did through they did. Um, letters and other correspondence. Well, I suppose so. Well, I guess the odd thing is not so much that they formed a collective and advocated for their interests. I guess the the odd thing that they did was where they directed those advocacies to. Ah, I see. Misdirected. Yes. So they directed their appeals. To the Minister for Defence. Oh, sorry. For a moment, I was thinking about emus advocating for No, no, the farmers, David. That makes sense. And then he said, what, they they talk to the Minister for Defence? Okay, sorry. I got turned around there. You really got turned around there, David. No, no, no. This is the farmers. This is the farmers Farmers. who formed the group and were advocating for their interests. I think I was answering the question as if I were an emu. (laughs) It's very unusual, David. It's very unusual. Uh, so the farmers they contacted the the Minister of Defence. Is that because they were former soldiers? Is that the I suspect so. Oh yes, actually it it, it is. So they contacted the Minister for Defence. Uh, this was a chap by the name of Sir George Pierce. Sure. So Sir George was an interesting guy. He was elected to the very first Parliament of Australia in nineteen oh one and he served as a senator until nineteen thirty eight. Oh, Old hat at the time. Mm, he was one of the. He was actually also when he died, he was the third last person from the original parliament to um to die as well. So yeah, he's okay. he stuck around for a long time. So he was also the deputy prime minister of Australia during the First World War. Mm-hmm. Have some political chops then. He had some political chops, and he was a senator for Western Australia as well. So he's right. I guess he's a, a local senator too. So they so the farmers went to the minister for defence. They asked for assistance, and he thought that uh, it was just the darn tootinous idea and that the army was the best place to come to uh, for this so for this problem. What what was the darn tootinous idea? The defence solving the emu problem. Oh, so that was what the correspondence from the farmers was, yeah. was please solve this Minister for Defence, former Deputy Prime Minister and one of the longest members, serving members of Parliament. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> So the farmers' original pitch, because they had been mm. former soldiers, and during the First World War they had seen how effective machine guns were, and they their their request was that please, Minister, could you send us some machine guns and we'll shoot the birds? Was what they had wanted. Right, and I mean it's a bold request. It's it's a little unusual, I guess, as their intended use. <laughs> Although a whole bunch of 60 kilo creatures running around ruining your farms. Okay, I guess they, they saw them as, as significantly more human than, um, than just dealing with a couple of, couple of pigeons or rats or something. <laughs> I guess. So, so anyway, so they wanted, okay. they wanted the military to arm them with machine guns. Oh, they didn't want the military to come in to to supervise. They wanted them just the guns. That's right. Please. So the the farmers asked, "Dear Sir George Pierce, Minister for Defence, could you please send us adequate machine guns so that we can kill these birds?" And to Pierce's credit, he was smart enough to think, "Maybe I won't give machine guns to untrained civilians, what, or even trained civilians. Even trained civilians. Frankly. I suppose they were former. They were. They were returns. A lot of them, not all, but a lot of yeah. them were returned servicemen. But you know, they were not active members of the military at the time. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have to ask for guns, I guess, if they were. 
So so he was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. But he did agree instead to send actual trained soldiers or personnel with said machine guns oh, okay. to yeah. to use in the operation to take care of the birds. So the army, he did have some provisos, though. <laughs> so the operation to take care of the birds, is that what it was called? Is that the code name at the time? Operation take care of the birds. <laughs> but he did, he had three provisos for yep. for the farmers. The proviso number one was the farmers had to pay for the ammunition. Proviso number two was what? the farmers had to pay for the soldiers' accommodation and food. And proviso number three was the WA government had to pay for the soldiers' transportation. So he was basically saying, we can totes help you out, but the government doesn't want to pay for anything. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> right. Okay. I guess it wasn't even that long after after Federation either. So the that sort of separation between... This is our military, not yours, Western Australia. Would be, I guess a. Well, there was a, there was a. Uh, we, I guess we can touch on it a little later. There was a, there was a big um, secession movement at the time as mm. well for WA in mm. the 30s. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's what I'm talking about. I, I guess I can see the um, the distinction is and and why that would be. Actually, um, we'll 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 we'll, we'll touch on the secession thing a little later. Okay. Oh, I hope emus are seceding. Pretty well order. They're being shot at by machine guns. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so flying in. Sorry. Tra- rail. Train. Training. Yeah. They're training in. Training in in soldiers with machine guns to be put up by the farmers, fed by the farmers, ammunition paid for by the farmers. That's right. I assume they don't organize it themselves though, and they get it shipped in, also trained in. Yeah. And uh, how many soldiers did they did they send? They about? sent. They only sent three. <laughs> it's, it's a local issue. Right? <laughs> well, this is why it's kind of like it's a little bit overblown to call it a war. It was three dudes with two guns. And to call it the Great Emu War, it sounds like a satirical, like a, like an ironic name for it. Okay. <laughs> All right, so three dudes with with yes machine guns. Three dudes with were machine they, guns. Like, uh, was it a Sten? I, I don't know what sort of machine. Guns oh, they were Maxine they machine guns. Who's Maxine? Well, that's just what they were called. M- oh, okay. M- so a- they weren't hers. M A X I M. I think is how it's spelled. Maxine machine guns. They were the ones that were M-A-X. used during the First World War. Oh, Maxim. 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 Like a Latin Maxim. Yeah, Maxim machine guns. Oh, oh, they're old style with some wheels on. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not going to be able to outrun a, an emu though with that. It's it is one of the most farcical looking machine guns I could think of to be involved in a confrontation with emus. I'm not sure why. It just seems like a terrible old cartoon making fun of something it's it's very old-fashioned i'm sure cutting edge at the time oh it was cutting edge the maxim machine gun was oof, changed warfare my friend but we'll talk more about that in a second anyway so they sent three guys and they needed they needed a man to lead the expedition and so they chose <laughs> a man who a man could think like the emus <laughs> Okay, yeah. yeah. So they chose one Major G.P.W. Meredith was uh, the chap's name. Now, what is interesting about the story of the Emu War and Major G.P.W. Meredith is that every every time this kind of story is told, he is only ever referenced by those initials, J.P.W. Meredith. Nowhere at any point is any of is his first name or any of his middle names mentioned gpw meredith. g so it's g dot p dot w surname yep. meredith 
Okay. It's not like a really good doctor. No. W. Mary. I mean, his name is excellent, as we're about to find out. Major GP. Yeah, okay. Mm. So, so, this guy. So, yeah. So, if you Google for him, the only thing you, you ever find is just references to the Emu War and just his initials. His most significant claim to fame. It, it is indeed his most significant claim to fame. So, he's always this, this shadowy figure, and I couldn't... I, get, I, I searched <laughs> I searched high and low to try to find out who this guy was. <laughs> But I did. I managed to track him down. I managed to track him down. You found him. I found him. I found him. Where <laughs> is he alive? No, no, no. He's well dead. Um, oh, okay. It's like I tracked him down. I tracked him and down. He's on the. He's, he's on, on the call. call with us. Welcome, Welcome Major Meredith. Major GPW Meredith. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I managed to track him down because there are a few passing references that he was a. He served in the First World War, and so a lot of the first, like in fact, all of the First World War service records are digitized and on the National Archives. So by trawling through them, I finally managed to find find him. And I, 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 his name is, it's, it's such an excellent name. So his full name was Gwyneth Purves Wynne Aubrey Meredith. He was born in Tasmania. I mean, sure. I mean, who else, what other name could possibly be the, the person who led the humans in the great emu war? Okay. He was born in Tasmania in 1887. Yeah. He was a career yeah. soldier. Uh, he previously served in the First World War as a captain, but when we meet him in our story, he is a major and about 45 years old. So he's been soldiering for some time. So they sent in a hardened soldier yes. with significant combat experience. I don't think he had a ton of combat experience. Okay. I think he was mainly <laughs> one of the more staff officers. Ah, okay. Mm, right. mm. But I mean, he's like a name like that. He'd be, look, I imagine he knew his stuff. <laughs> he was the commanding officer of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Army Artillery at the time based in Fremantle. Mm-hmm. And so he gets his orders to take himself, two men and two machine guns into the countryside to take care of them birds. Oh, he's included in the three. He's not leading the three. He's one of the he's three. He's one of the three. What a command. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Real feather in his cap. Uh, oh, that's good throwback. Marie Antoinette would be proud. Oh, she would indeed. Well, because funnily enough, one of the reasons um, that Pierce gave in Parliament for why it was a good idea to do this was that they'd be able to collect the emu feathers for the Anzac slouch hats. Oh, yeah, of course. Because um, emu okay. feathers feature prominently in the headwear of Australian soldiers. Yeah, it's all fitting together. Mm, mm, mm. It sounds like an ulterior motive, <laughs> frankly, to me. They're like, but... you know, we'll be able to get some feathers for uh, the slouch hats. It'd be great. Yeah, it's, it's a conspiracy that the Great <laughs> Emu War was started just to, to get feathers uh, for hats. It's amazing. I can believe it. Mm. So, I mean, I guess, you know, at this point, it's pretty clear that this war is not a war. It's kind of that that is the satirical line that the press at the time took as it was literally three dudes two guns, a pickup truck, and, you know, they're just doing a bit of wildlife pest control. So there's no, like, Cassus belly no. call reason for war here. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of tokenistic as well. No. Two people <laughs> with a commander? So what, did you say a pickup truck? Yes, I did say a pickup. We'll get to the pickup truck later. I hope we do. Oh, we will. <laughs> so, uh, so the date is the 2nd of November, 1932. Uh, this is when they, they arrive on the scene and they engage the birds for the first time. <laughs> okay. They had to do some <laughs> reconnaissance first to 
to check their uh, encampments and numbers of guards. And... <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, so they came across a group of about 50 birds near the town of Campion. Outnumbered. Oh, they were indeed, uh, you know, I don't know what those are. Three to 50. <laughs> Not outgunned, though. Not outgunned. They had two to none. So when they came upon the birds, the birds were, they were out of range. And so there was a group of farmers with them and they tried to assist the troops by kind of flushing the birds towards them. But as soon as they opened fire, the birds scattered in all directions and they almost all of them got away. Excellent. Great. If only it ended there and we have a happy story of emus escaping. <laughs> the emus, they, they, yeah, so they basically, they scattered in all directions, they ran away. And so I don't mm. know, like, how knowledgeable are you about military hardware, David? I would say very not knowledgeable. <laughs> I, well, look, okay. I've played many video games. I've watched a lot of documentaries and read history books. So I'm aware that old machine guns can jam and that they need servicing mm. and that I'm sure there are other sorts of, of um, supply issues that are related to all of that. Mm. But um, that's probably as far as I go. Certainly not enough to understand mm. or to anticipate how it might impact an engagement with 50 birds, large flightless birds running away. So actually we'll come to the jamming later because that does happen later. But (laughs) I suppose, so in the First World War, the machine gun was an incredibly effective tool, but it has two kind of strategic uses, I suppose, is what you'd say. And so if you're going to use the machine gun in a, in a strategic way, it's, it's really good at suppressing an enemy advance. Mm. So if you're like in a fortified position and an enemy is assaulting you, you use a machine gun and it suppresses they're unable to kind of like advance on your position because you just, there's a wave of shrapnel flying at them essentially. Yeah, not necessarily accurate, but suppression tool. Yeah, it's a good suppression tool. And the other use is that if you're advancing, you can essentially use it in the same way that you can suppress their from repelling you and it allows your troops to kind of like flank a position and kind of pin them while suppressing their uh, defenses. Um, so those are the kind of the situations where the machine gun is most effective. But if you've kind of got a target that's scattering in all directions, it's not really going to work in the same way. It's like, it's, it's not the tool for the job, essentially. You, you mean the, the Maxim machine gun wasn't the right tool to address a large number of birds <laughs> destroying crops? Okay. I know, it's a shock twist, right? You'd think you'd just mow... Shock, mow. That's the twist. <laughs> that's the twist. The machine gun, it's not, it's like, it's not super effective. So, so what happened after this first engagement? What did they... Did they change tactics? Well, look, they, they did. So two days later, they tried a different tactic. And this time they set an ambush at a dam and they right. waited for the birds, like, to come to them. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But this time, cruel fate intervened and the guns jammed. And so... <sighs> And so the birds had time to um to scatter and they all got away again. Cruel fate? Cruel fate intervened. Wondrous. Excellent. <laughs> I guess it depends on uh, whose Excellent perspective you fate. take. Exactly. <laughs> well intentioned and on the right side of history, fate. Ah, uh, David. <laughs> on the side of the bird, always you're, on the side of the bird. You're gunning for the humans. I, I'm for the, the birds in this scenario. But you know, look, I'm I'm ready to be shocked with another twist that actually the emus had done something really terrible but um no there's no shock twist coming all right um, so failed ambush number gun two jammed take the take the truck back to the farmhouse let's sort that out 
Oh no, the truck comes. The truck comes later. <laughs> okay, we haven't okay. got to the truck yet. Right. So I think what what is interesting uh, is that we have a few accounts from the soldiers at the time. The two soldiers. Then. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so uh, one of them is reported as saying that the emus have proven that they are not as uh, not so stupid as they are usually considered to be. Each mob has a leader, always an enormous black-plumed bird standing full six feet high who keeps watch with his fellows busy about themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives a signal and dozens of heads stretch up from the crop. A few birds will take flight, starting a headlong stampede from the scrub, the leader always remaining until his fellows have reached safety. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I don't think this guy was projecting anything onto the <laughs> emu's organisation. That seems exactly he's like right. The, he's like, the birds are organised. I mean, this is this is... I hope this has been adapted to a film at some point. You know, I did read that apparently John Cleese has recently just written a script for a film that's coming out this year or next year on this. Oh, really? Is it a dark comedy? I, I believe so. Yes. I haven't Perfect. seen I haven't seen a, a trailer or anything, but yeah, apparently uh, John Cleese has made a film adaptation of this story. Oh, just this, this soldier riding home. <laughs> the birds were five steps ahead of us again. <laughs> Oh, always, always ahead of us. I met the the leader emu's eyes and saw the the will and the death and the strength of character. <laughs> and I knew only one of us would leave this field of battle. <laughs> P.S. Please tell, please tell Daddy I love him, and that I hope he is proud <laughs> of what we're doing here. Happy as well. Please keep uh, the reality of my conditions from sister. She'll only worry. <laughs> <laughs> I I enclose an emu feather for young Timmy's hat for his game. The spoils of war. <laughs> as, as the spoils of war. This one got away. Next as time. they all did. As they all did. As they all always do. They have mock they us. To, have they actually managed to kill any emus at this point? At this point, they have only killed an undisclosed small number. Oh, that sounds optimistic, doesn't it? That's That's... All right, sure. <laughs> so seeing that the birds were pretty zippy, Meredith, so their first two strategies hadn't worked. So he came up with a third strategy, and this idea, his idea was to mount the machine gun on the jeep so they could chase the birds. Yes. Was was that a common thing at the time? Because obviously now and it seems to be a relatively common use of a machine gun. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Surely in the 30s, not as common as it is now. Hmm. Okay, so he was making his machine guns mobile. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. He did. How do you think that went? Uh, look, I can only assume <laughs> that's it just worked perfectly, especially since he cut the number of machine guns from two to one. Or was, was there more than one machine gun this entire time? Or was there only one machine gun with two soldiers and a commander? It was uh, two soldiers with two machine guns. Oh, okay, great. So they did have their, their arsenal. <laughs> to make it more mobile they did do well you know maybe you know you gotta up your 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 agility stats you know yeah, but you it comes true. at, a, a, at the cost of your strength stats later. yeah so but you know look I can, <laughs> exactly i i assume as well that the truck famously a quiet vehicle it doesn't <laughs> alert emus <laughs> skittish emus from a distance that there's something coming and they could take them by surprise <laughs> Yeah, so 
No, it didn't work. Yeah, okay. Yes, so on the unpaved roads, they struggled to keep up with the birds, which are quite fast anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By all accounts, the ride was so rough that it was impossible to aim <laughs> or fire the machine gun in any sort of effective way. I'm shocked. So, I didn't so see they, coming. they once again failed to take down any birds. <laughs> is this like the third day or is this like weeks of really <laughs> hard strategizing? <laughs> this, this has all occurred and it's now the 8th of November. So only six days have elapsed. Six days. Well, look, it's a busy week. Okay. <laughs> they had a full week. Yep. <laughs> and it was at day six that they the operation was brought to a halt. And the reports vary, but it seems that across the whole days that they used about 2,500 rounds of ammo oh to kill God. about that's... 200 birds, maybe. Oh, well, that, that's not an undisclosed small number. That's quite a lot of birds. Well, that was, so it was an undisclosed st- small number after their first engagement. And so... I guess they must. They must look. They must have got some at some point. They got. They, they got about two hundred. They, they got, got about two hundred. The emus. Yeah. Thought like them. So Meredith himself was quite impressed with the birds, especially with their <laughs> ability. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> he was impressed. He was impressed. Um, it a was worthy a partic- foe. He was. Yes. He was, a, it was. It was. He made particular note of their ability to take several hits and keep running. Yeah. They were kind of like Boromir at the end of uh, you know, the Fellowship of the Ring. He just takes, take. They just take a shot and they just keep going, sort of thing. And so, in his official report on the operation, Meredith stated that um, if we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, we would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns <laughs> with the invulnerability of tanks. Look, I mean, you could say that about lots of large animals. um, Okay, yeah, cool. So, So, presumably, he was uh, also partly trying to justify his obscene (laughs) amount of of time and energy and resources and ammunition Mm, mm, on mm. this issue. Okay, I mean, there there was one bright spot in his report, though. So, he was pleased to add in his report that uh, his own men had suffered no casualties. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I I hope that that was an entirely intentionally humorous conclusion. I don't know. Like, that's I ridiculous. have no idea. Love it. Love it. That's a real either sense of humor or just, just better than that, just really taking it seriously. Respecting those yeah. emus. They could have done it as well. So was this like a final report? Oh, oh no! Well, there's a little bit more yet. We're we're not quite oh, good. Well, yeah. So this so this was in his report after they had kind of after you know they'd thrown in the towel for the first time. <laughs> the first time. Okay. Oh yeah. I love Sorry. Where this is going. Yes. <laughs> so in Parliament, the opposition had a had a, a bit of a field day with this, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> yes. One New South Wales um, Labor senator reportedly quipped that medals should be struck and handed out to the emus. <laughs> For they had won every battle in the conflict. Yeah, the bravery they were showing. Oh, was, there, was there a follow-up? There was a Dorothy Dixer asking, <laughs> would the minister please share with the Senate the steps that the government is taking to address the EMU plague in Western Australia? <laughs> so, of course, I'd be delighted to answer the, the Honourable Member's question. Look, that, that, there, were, there were many yucks to be had, but the farmers were still annoyed because... The emu problem hadn't gone away, and so of course not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. So, so they approached Sir Pierce again, mm. and they were like, "Dude, the emus—they're still here. You got to do something about it." And he was like, 
yeah, right, why not? So <laughs> it's, it's been going so well thus far. Let's so, do more. So they sent Meredith back with oh, these men. Well, I mean, he's he's seasoned now with emus. <laughs> he's experienced. So they sent him back. Yeah. Um, but this time, this time they they learnt from the emus strategy, and <laughs> yeah. they had they had better luck the second time round. Oh, and reportedly, that's sad. Reportedly, they managed to get a thousand birds with about ten thousand rounds. So you know they're taking about a hundred shots per bird. Not a great economy of enema, but you know. Do you say a thousand birds? Uh, no, no. The, yeah, they got a thousand birds on ten thousand yeah. rounds. Ten rounds each. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You're, you're quite right, David. Ten maths. Maths. Um, you know that's and that's much better. Yeah. You know? It's that's like surprise, like, not surprisingly, but quite distressingly accurate um, yeah. and efficient use of ammunition. That's that's quite upsetting. Yeah, so they they were much more effective the second time around, and so they 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 got about a thousand birds the second time. And but how you, many you may recall on the human side? I, I think once again they came off um, scot free. Well. Okay. Yes, but <laughs> you may you may recall that there were originally twenty thousand emus, and so when they were done, there were still nineteen thousand emus. So right, they may not have been very effective. When all was said and done. Well, I mean, it's a, a bit of a test case sending two people <laughs> in the the season commander. Yeah, so I think it took them about a month the second time. Oh, to they, they stuck around for longer than a week this time. Okay. Yes, I think. Um, yeah, they're they're a month out in the field. The I wonder what time. they did differently. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've, it never really goes into much detail as to what happened the second time around. I think they their strategies must have changed. They must have understood what the, where the birds behaved a bit better, I guess. They realised they were being idiots. It still took them a month to get a thousand birds. It's you know, it's a slow operation. So they got a few birds in the end. And, that, and that's when the operation was called off. And so, yeah, the operation was never a war. It was more tokenistic pest control with machine guns, which, you know, questionably didn't actually provide all that much support in the end anyway, which is not that different from how, you know, governments ladle out support these days. Less machine guns, was, I was guess. Was that the end of it then? Like, that that was the end of the operation was one week, sorry, almost a week, six days. They didn't almost quite week. go too well. But wow, the emus, they really, they really measured up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then they went back and they killed a bunch more defenseless from a distance emus and thought, yeah, that's it. We're done pretty much and didn't really achieve any of the operations goals so what do the farmers think i can give you some aftermath uh, information if you'd like david all our key players some after action reports did they write wistfully about the the <laughs> noble bearing of emus as well and the bravery they showed in the face of unimaginable odds uh, tell me what 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 did, what did people say about this great emu so one? Uh, so, who would you like first? Would you like um, the aftermath of Sir George Pierce, Major Meredith, or the Emus? <laughs> I didn't know those are the options. I was going to ask for the farmers what they thought had happened. Oh, you'll get a little bit on the farmers with the Emus. Okay. Would you like? We'll start with the Emus. No, I'd like the Emus at the end. I think they should have the final say. Okay, who who would you like first then, Pierce or Meredith? Let's go with Meredith. Let's. Oh, actually, no. Okay, let's do you Pierce Meredith? first. Let's get the minister out of the way. We'll handle the minister first. Okay. So George Pierce was pretty much at the end of his political career by this stage. We, we, we touched on it briefly. 
that there was a push from WA to secede from the rest of the country. And there was a referendum held within Western Australia itself, which succeeded. The referendum was successful, but because there was no provision in the Australian constitution for a secession, it was deemed invalid and WA was not allowed to leave. Indeed, WA remains part of Australia to this day. That, that's the shock twist. Though. Um, <laughs> it's I, a shock twist. I think I misremembered that then. Um, I think I thought that there was like a, there was a, a an actual push in, in federal parliament for that. No, no. So this was all coming up from WA itself. And so George Pierce was a senator for Western Australia, and he was a very strongly advocated in the stay camp, not for the leave camp. And so what happened uh, when the next election, federal election in 1937 rolled around, there was all the separatist movement, those people, they launched a campaign to vote him out and to have people vote him last on the ticket which then proved to be successful. And he lost his seat in Parliament over the secession question. Oh, and it wasn't over the emu debacle. Well, part of the emu debacle, the reason why I suppose people kind of speculate that part of the reason why he was receptive to the requests was that he wanted to be seen as placating the people in the area from a federal government kind of position. And as he was a senator from that state and there was like these secession kind of things rumbling and he wanted to keep them as you wanted to like keep them as part of Australia, wanted to placate them, like give them what they wanted. Yeah. It's probably why he was perhaps more willing to go along with their dumb idea, maybe. Are you saying that it was politically motivated, not based on evidence? It may have been politically motivated, not based on evidence. May have. Who, who can say? Who can say? We'll never know. Only Sir George Pierce what, what did Meredith have to say on it? What, what happened to Meredith? Meredith. So... So for for our old friend Major Meredith, the whole emu thing, it was barely a blip in his career. Um, so he remained a career soldier, and he had quite, from what I can gather, he had quite a distinguished career, actually. So he served, as I said, in the First World War, and then he then served in the Second World War as a colonel, and he then uh, would serve as a brigadier general in the Korean War. Oh, okay. So he served in a lot of conflicts, and he was highly decorated by the Korean government after the war. He was awarded a Distinguished Service Medal with Gold Star from the Korean government for his exceptional meritorious mm -hmm. service. And, and then he was also a Distinguished Service Medal from the US government as well for the role he played in the achievement of a high standard of ordnance operations within the Republic of Korea. See, so Emu events aside he, he was clearly a career soldier he was a career soldier and he rose to quite a high level within the army as well so he finally retired from the army in 1957 at the age of 70 and he died uh, the 5th of may 1975 and his obituary notes that he was a soldier loved by his troops and highly regarded by all those who knew and served with him and respected by the emus respected by birds near and far <laughs> wow that's a it's a weird thing to be involved in, in a career like that, I would think. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, First World War, Second World War, Korean War. Great also shot war. at some emus. <laughs> yeah. Right. Very bizarre. And so the emus. Oh, yes, the most important characters in this story. So with the emus, the farmers, they would continue to apply for military aid against the birds in 1934, in 1943, and 1948. For military aid. Okay. They wanted to do more of that. On these subsequent occasions, their requests were turned down. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, were they asking uh, for the same thing, do you know? Or was it just general, military aid, whatever you think? Doesn't need to be the same thing as last time. Clearly yep. that didn't work. 
pl- just please come and shoot the birds. Yes. Um, in the okay. end, a bounty system was introduced where the government would pay for dead emus that were presented. Oh, that's a bit sad. Yeah, that's um, that is a bit sad because uh, that proved to be very successful, and yeah. some fifty-seven thousand bounties were collected. Well, I mean, I guess famously that sort of approach to, to rat catching and other sorts of. Of animal catching mm. has been quite successful in, in other cities. So the bounty system proved to be much more effective. But what ultimately solved the problem was better fences. <laughs> that the emus couldn't trample and get over yeah. as easily. They just made better just, fences. Just prevent it. Don't shoot them. Okay. What what was so different about the fences? Do you know? I guess they were just sturdier. Right. Did the military provide them? I don't believe so, no. But the good news is that, you know, the emu is now a protected species and uh, killing them is a a big no-no. That is a wonderful news. I guess the emus, they won in the end. (laughs) Was there there ever a a victor declared? Was there a truce? Uh, Are we technically still at war with the emus? Oh, that's that's right. Well, there was never a formal declaration of war, so. Oh, so, oh, I see. Mm. Right, so we're not... We're not still at war with them because we've never been at no, war. Never, never were. <laughs> technically, right. I say we. No. I, I wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't participate in I, such a war. I David? would protest against that. What war. if there was a conscription and you were called up? <laughs> God. Oh, <that> would <laughs> you be a conscientious objector? <laughs> I think I would have to, and I would be very conscientious <laughs> to, to object to that. Um, it's, I think I'd, it sounds I think like I'd a, it, yeah. a good uh, plot of an episode <laughs> of something. I hope that John Cleese thinks about that for the upcoming adaptation. And that's oh, a, a major plot point of a, of a young a young person leaving their family at the tender age of, I don't know, let's say 17 in this scenario <laughs> and being called up for war on the way there, like the, the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. They're all just huddled in a truck instead of the the landing boats. Oh, it would be dark. Um, I am I am very glad that emus are now protected. I am very glad mm. that clearly shooting them wasn't the solution. Wasn't pursued for that long once they managed to get fences. So so that was the, the great emu war, and very clearly it was not, not a war. Not a war. Nor was, it was it great. Not great. It was about emus. It was about emus. Emus did feature. You know, one out of three is not and bad. And it was a real folly of humanity moment. <laughs> you know what? That's probably a good way to put it's it. It's a folly. It's a folly. It's an indulgent folly in pursuit of political uh, favor amongst people who, from the sounds of it, were very misguided as to the way of resolving a situation that they created. Yes. Excellent. Humanity. Humanity. Excellent work, emus. Killing stuff since time immemorial. <laughs> yeah. Emus never change. So I guess that, that that's our emu. That's our emu story. Amazing. Thank you for podcasting with me, David. It's been a delight. It's, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I really enjoyed hearing about the ridiculous things that emus had to witness and I'm glad that they're not endangered now as a result of that. Yeah, they weren't wiped out. We, they came through okay. They got there. They won. They took those the bullets. <laughs> like a <And> tank. <laughs> like a tank. Oh, God. So that was the story of the Great Emu War. 
or the tokenistic pest control operation with machine guns, if you prefer. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and a special thank you to David for once again coming in and indulging me in some bird silliness. Hopefully I can convince David to come back again another time for another story, because, trust me, I got more to tell. Next week, though, we're going to have a change of pace. We're going to take a closer look at bird nests. What are they? How are they made? And what design choices are out there? I hope you'll join me then. Now, if you still want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about the emu. That's right, if you still haven't had your fill of emu action, then boy oh boy, you don't want to miss this one, because I am going to lay out just where the name emu comes from, and what it means. And, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week, or one word, link in the description to find out more. And, if you're feeling especially generous and you want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, Innes of Senny Illustration, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you each and every week. I mean, hey... Who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Oh, I just I just thought of a, a missed opportunity for the um, the bounty programs. There's that fancy yourself a rat catcher. How about you become a ratite catcher? Hunt emus now. We'll pay you. They should have had you for the, the, the marketing, David. I mean, it's the modern gaze, you know. It's the, <laughs> the, the word plays. We've come a long way. We're standing on the shoulders of giants before us.